Yeah, Vaughn? Still coming at the end. Hey, hey, hey. I gotta admit, I was hoping for you. Probably, I, I don't think I ever told you this. A lot of times, I'll think about. Remember the one pod we recorded in the morning? It's like our first one in the morning. Yes. And you were doing your thing. <laughs> yes. It was so adorable. You were like, "Hello, Nubs. How are you? How did you sleep?" Yeah. It was like, <laughs> <laughs> I think about that. Was one. that? Uh, did you hear that? that? I was hoping for that one right now. Did you hear that while, cause it is morning ish. I mean, it's not top of the morning to you, but it's, it's close enough where we're both looking a little struggle-ish, you know? I mean, I have that look perpetually, so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But, it's before noon, which is. Yeah. For us, that's yeah. still a little on the, on the early side, you know? Our but, voices probably have a little bit of that morning thing going on yeah morning yeah. dew yeah morning dew. you know it's funny we actually so that we weren't gonna do morning we were gonna do this last night and <laughs> it was kind of funny we both got in our respective when i walked down to my little studio my little corner podcast area you know it was like you remember revenge of the nerds when they first arrived to the house that needs to be uh refurbished and and there's like spider webs and stuff you know booger does the welcome you remember all that yeah that of was course. that was kind of like what it was like in my little studio here like it, it, it's been five months as it turns out we just checked that before we started uh since we did an episode which is a little bit uncalled for admittedly right but let's catch up new job for you yeah um going to lots of shows lots of shows and i'm quite a terror yeah. Like, which I think is amazing. I mean, yeah. you're not that you never really took like a long break from shows, but was it the, uh, the sort of pandemic and all that? Did it kind of make you say like, okay, when freaking shows get back, I'm on it. Like, I'm not, you know, is that it? Or, or are you just kind of on fire right now? Or is this just industry standard? Yes. I would say that I would say that the pandemic had pandemic mm. had Something to do with the the idea of if a band comes, go see them. Don't wait for the next time. Yeah. Yeah. The other element to that is you already mentioned Peter Steele. It mm-hmm. will never leave me the fact that we went to that typo show at Harpo's. Right. And what, you know, two months later or whatever, maybe less, Peter Steele was gone and we were never going to see typo negative again. That stuck with me. That really yeah. stuck with me in a way of like, Dude, you got to go when you can go. If you, if you notice, I am trying, most of the shows I'm going to right now are bands I haven't seen yet, mm-hmm. who are maybe on the last tour in the case of a recent one that we'll get into when we go round and round, or just thinking they're near the end of the line. Like right. I must go do this. Right. And yeah. you know, I, and I've got, uh, there are two things simultaneously. One is I have an incredibly, um, 
you know, quite forgiving uh, spouse that I live with that is very cool about it. Doesn't hurt. Gets doesn't it. hurt to have that. Yeah. It doesn't hurt. So I have to thank uh, Arch a lot on that because, I mean, so many guys don't go to shows just simply because they've got somebody yeah. telling them they can't and I'm not in that situation. And Because they got their balls in a jar, usually. <laughs> right, exactly. Not you. Not you, buddy. No. No. And, and so a lot of credit there. And the other thing is I really, I, we've, we've gathered kind of a great crew to go to shows, the token crew we're calling ourselves. Nice. Um, and, uh, and it makes it so much fun. So Tell us the last four shows you've been to and a 10 second review of each go. Porno for Pyros. Impressively great. Mm. Much better than I would have anticipated. Was Perry Farrell's wife on stage doing stripper pole maneuvers? Is that his wife? The oh yeah, backup singer. Oh yeah, oh. does she sing? I don't think she sings. So I think you might. I think that might be just for Jane's. He actually didn't oh. have the girls in a cage uh, with Porno for Pyros. He he had a a backup singer who was very attractive. Yeah, and and then a keyboard player. I don't know if either one of them were his wife. The 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 hot Asian gal that usually flips around oh, and does no. all that is his wife. That's his wife. I think. Yeah, she wasn't there. She oh, was okay. at Jane's shows. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Got it. She just sits these ones up. She just stays home during this one, I guess. Yes. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. So Porter for Pyros uh, before that was Mr. Big. Some rather decent uh, musicianship there. Yeah. Oh, my God. My like head was spinning. And yeah. now they added, I think their former or original drummer died. So they just went out and got Nick Virgilio to play oh, drums. It yeah, was like, fine. you know, one of the best drummers in the world. And did Billy Sheehan do a bass solo? He did do a bass solo. <laughs> was it sweet? Yeah, it was incredible. Probably the best bass solo I've ever was seen. Was it better than Michael Anthony's bass solos? Remember, remember <laughs> the Jack Michael Daniels? Anthony's? Yeah, where he would just like put a looper on and just pluck normal bass notes play his yeah. one notes yeah he, he had yeah. uh it, but he'd play the jack daniels bass remember sammy hagar yeah. would, would say uh ladies and gentlemen uh on bass guitar mr jack daniels <laughs> what did he say that or do some which is kind of hilarious so and then that sammy hagar guy needs to learn how to have a good time you know i tell you what he really needs to loosen up you know? yeah, yeah 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 and then uh well I, oh i would saw mammoth not only the best band around right now under the age of 40 Wolfgang Van Halen is the best musician under 40 wow. in the universe. Okay. P people just have no idea how good he is. He's playing every instrument on his records. It's incredible stuff. We'll get to that. And then, yeah. so that I won't count that, but then I saw machine head in yeah. fear factory. And that one I wanted to go to with you, but I was in uh, California at that time. So yes, but I went to that yeah. one solo and, nice. uh, God, Machine Head was good. And Fear Factory with their new singer is awesome. I mean, I miss Burton Seabell, of course. But uh, well, Burton Seabell's great, but I'm sure the new guy can actually uh, hit the notes, you know, which, which he sounds helpful. incredible. He hits every note. He's like an Italian opera singer or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. that was, you know, so nice. Yeah. Okay. Been on quite a but really, if you think about that one, see, Mr. Big never seen, Mammoth never seen. Machine had never seen Fear Factory song, but not with you the saw new machine head at an Ozfest. In, Did we? Uh, I was trying 96. to remember yes. that. Yeah, oh. they played. Well, I mean, it was like a daytime, you know, festival set. But yes, they they played at that Ozfest with Typo and Pintera and uh, obviously Ozzy, you know, 90. Yeah. Was it, okay. 96. 
So we did see them. Okay. Yeah. But you and know, then, this was a real machine head show, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And then the porno for powers thing was just cool. P- Perry's so you know, and then I go down the rabbit hole of watching Perry Farrell interviews. Yeah. God, I love listening to him talk. Yeah, he's great. He's so great. You know, you, you, it's like everyone thinks of like, cause he's, you know, he went through those phases of pretty rather elaborate drug use and he got pretty out there for a while, but at his core, he's just a dude from Brooklyn, I think New York city, wherever. Uh, you know who he's just this like skinny jewish guy from new york who is just pretty just pretty cool you know he's just like yeah. a cool dude and very honest and yeah he's really insightful super smart i mean yeah start you you start Palooza, you must know a thing or two but yeah. uh they were great you know stephen perkins is worth the price of admission to quote you on whatsapp yeah. that night and uh it was just a fun show, but his between, well, I'll tell you something real quick. His between song banter, always legendary. Cause Perry, you know, what the hell is he talking about? Yeah. 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 And Porno for Mars is a song called Aqua. And so before they played, is it, it's Agua. Maybe it's either. Okay. I think it, whatever, whatever. Same, same thing. I guess it's, same thing. it's all water related. You know? So before the song, you know, we're in Detroit and he goes, Hey everybody. I'll do my Perry for all. Yeah, time. good Perry. By Thanks. Way. He goes just randomly. Just goes, hey everybody. You know, just want to make sure is the water okay? Like, how's things going with the water? You know, Are you guys doing okay with the water? And I I don't know if you thought so, he was. In is Flint. that like a is that like yes. a Flint reference? Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a Flint thing. Yeah. <laughs> and we're all kind of sitting like, okay, like you know, <laughs> hour and twenty away, but you know. It was, it was great. It was awesome. That's like it's like that's like going to California and being like, "Are the fires okay? How's everything going with the fire?" You know, like, <laughs> like or, or going to Asia and being like, "How's the tsunami? Is everything good?" Like, yeah. Like, wh- yeah. Why go there, Perry? Exactly. But that's just him. That's just him. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Been on quite a tear. And, and shout out to uh, Token Crew, Chili and Sam. It's it's been quite a run, man. But it's gonna keep going. I, I look at. March and April, it's, it's, I mean, it's packed full. That's a beautiful thing. You know, I'm a little, um, I'm a little ticked off. I've got a little two twins in an album beef right now with, uh, with Netflix because I've had like probably five, not that many, five or six people come to me and be like, Hey, have you seen that new Netflix special on we are the world? And I'm like, Oh, I haven't watched it, but we did that did that first <laughs> oh there's a new and they're like documentary like, had, on it? like i had no idea like it was the night of the award show and you know and bruce springsteen drove his truck and pounded like like 10 beers during it and cindy lopper couldn't hit her i was like all this all you have to do is tune into two twins in an yes. album episode 50 whatever, whatever. yeah you, you, you know put the netflix down and 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 and, and raise the podcast up well, you know, the you main know, you, issue you, is like, how we were there they, first though. We were there before. There's that. no doubt. You're mm-hmm. right. And, and you get the credit. You chose that one. Yeah. How could they ever improve on the original documentary? That was, who was it hosted by? Oh, was the Sheena the, Easton? Uh, with the intro from Jane Fonda, Jane Fonda, I don't know, I thought she <laughs> which we played, which we played on the, on the episode. Yeah. yeah. How yeah, could yeah. you ever improve on that? I mean, that's the OG. Like that's it is. And that's like just raw footage. Like there's no Jane gives a little intro, you know, for some reason. 
but the, you know that's just like here it is you know now this is yeah. going to be all this is going to be all netflixed where you know it's all uh produced and dramatic and everything but i mean what's next they're going to do a, a whole documentary about the klf you know and then i'm gonna have people coming <laughs> yeah. up to me being like hey you know this story about the klf oh yeah yeah i knew i actually do know it yeah look we just whole, need to accept the whole episode it. about it we we're pretty much determining the zeitgeist two twins in an album well there's even when point. you take five months off we're still what's the word now influencers i think we're influencers yeah, that's that, that's the main that's kind of the main point I'm getting at. And, and good words, zeitgeist. Let's go round and round. All right. You kind of already alluded to uh, where you might be headed with this one. But what's round and round for you, buddy? So, I, you know, I actually did like 30 seconds of prep for this show which you know we never that's do. more than usual yeah i wrote down my three round and rounds i'll show it to you on the screen can you see it well and i see that this yeah. is a blue cross blue shield yeah. invoice my, of some kind and you've written my show prep uh yeah there you go there it is i i see a theme here yeah mammoth mr big and porno for pyro so i'm gonna skip two of those i will begin by talking about mammoth the first round around for me is mammoth two the second album from wolfgang van halen it would be a mistake in so many ways for uh music fans to not listen to this record or give this artist this very unique and important artist right now a chance these two albums that he's made so far are just the songwriting is is incredible. I can only describe it as Foo Fighters mixed with for you and it podunk, like, hmm. you know, a band that just, now everyone should go listen to podunk by the way. So food dunk food dunk. There you go. Or the Poe fighters, Poe fighters. Yeah. Yeah. Podunk's an amazing band by the way. They are. And it's their songwriting, right? Like their songwriting is super complete and everything has, you know, a, a, drama to it, you know, rises and falls and rhythmic changes. And I mean, he is so dialed in, you know, he's, he's, his favorite band is Meshuggah Wolfgang. And you can feel that kind of rhythmic thing that's going on in his music, but obviously in a much more commercial way. The thing at the show that stood out, his voice is powerful. I, I, he's, he's saying at one point I was almost like, God, is he like, is this a backing track or something? Cause he just was like on the nuggets on every single note. So nice. mammoth two for sure. With that, I'm going to choose two other new releases because I, you know, there's been a lot of stuff come out. Big Wreck released its newest uh, album, Pages One. Excellent, excellent stuff again from Ian Thornley, Thornley and Gang. Looking forward. I think I'm going to go see them in Buffalo, New York, wow. uh, later this year, which will be nice. kind of cool. You know, my daughter's into them, so there's an all ages show there. So I think we're going to road trip it there. Nice. Uh, lastly, I'm going to go with. Uh, you know, an album from from this the past year that it's one of those that you listen to a million times. You hear something new each time. Not a surprise when you consider the source, which is Trevor Rabin with the album Rio. Trevor Rabin, of course, of Yes, the '80s incarnation of Yes and '90s, I should say. Mm -hmm. uh, really, really, you know, incredible stuff. Just all over the map musically, as Trevor Rabin seems to always be. Some soundtracky stuff, some good rock, a lot of prog. Every time you listen to it, you hear something a little bit new and a little different. So Trevor Rabin, Rio, and that is round and round for me. T, what is spinning around for you? Well, three things for me that have been on the nuggets, to use your the word you used a couple minutes ago, which you I've like never that? heard before. 
yeah. never heard that before. On yeah. the Nuggets. Right on the Nuggets. Yeah. <laughs> um, the first is a new record from MGMT. This is called Loss of Life. Now, for a bit there, these guys got a little, I don't know, maybe overly electronica and a little overly uh, experimental. I feel like this is focused. They're, there's musicianship, there's instrumentation, and it's very creative. I think it's a pretty good record, you know, from uh, a group that maybe got a little too cute for its own good for a while. But I, I think this most recent album is actually pretty creative and pretty clever and pretty good. Uh, the second is, uh, dude, I've gotten into this uh, kind of industrial thing recently, you know, oh. revisiting. Yeah, revisiting yeah. some of that. And part of that is discovering uh, KMFDM. Okay. You know, and yeah. uh, they're really good. They're really good. I didn't wow, understand. I wouldn't was... have pegged this one. Maybe the KLF led into this indirectly? Maybe. I mean, um, I, I, I didn't understand that they were so like guitar based and that their songs are very directional. This is not like you get into like Nitzareb and even, you know, some iterations of ministry and it can get pretty just aggressive and out there and and in many cases directionless whereas KMFDM is a huge catalog that goes you know decades at this point and it's pretty interesting they might become kind of a shuffle band where you can put all their records into a playlist hit shuffle and have a good time but how did you uh you know I know how much you love talking about music format did you Buy these on CD, vinyl, yeah. digital. Yeah, see, like, they're a CD. They're a CD. They're group. A, I mean, okay, good. That's why I asked yeah. because I was going to suggest. I think with all the industrial stuff, particularly for the '90s, like you really want to go CD on that. Gotta be, yeah, gotta yeah. be, no question. So, what's um, next? They, uh, my life with the Thrill Kill Cults. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, they just put out a new record called "Let Go," and it's like their 18th album or something. But I don't know. Look, Check it out. Let me know if you think I'm crazy on that. But there, there's some actually start with they, they put out a compilation. It's uh, it's called Greatest Shit. You know, instead of greatest. Yeah, so industrial. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's actually a great starting point if you want to at least check that band out. But now I've gotten into kind of their album stuff and let go is their recent release. And then um there's a band who is putting out a brand new album today. I can't have it on round and round because I haven't heard it yet. It just came out today, but I'm going to put their most recent record, which is entitled first congressional church of eternal love and free hugs. Do you know the band I'm talking about? Huh? I'll give no, you a hint. I don't. I'll give you a hint. Noel Gallagher was a big fan of this band. Maybe still is. They're new. They're a new band. No, 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 no. Oh, oh. Uh, and spiral carpets. That's yeah, a decent guess. Kula shaker. Um, yeah, yeah, who, you know, again, they've taken their breaks and things, but they've been doing this for a while and brand new album, which is called natural magic with a CK comes out today. So we'll see how that is. But first congressional church of eternal love and free hugs has been on the rotation and they're a good band. They're a solid band. They're kind of experimental. Oh, one other thing I want to know. I think, I suppose this is still round and round ish. I think I finally have found the best Humphreys McGee live recording. And I've been listening to it a ton start to finish. And I wanted to share it with you. It's November 14th, 2021. 
this is just a show and it's in their hometown of South Bend. I think I finally found it here. Listen to this. This is the set. Okay. Mantis, all in time, syncopated strangers, words, speak up, last train home, Mulch's Odyssey, dear Lord. And then the Mantis second half. That's the first set. Mulch's I could probably do without. Yeah. Um, but all in, it's a all in time. Was it like 28 minutes? No, it's the first half of it. So, okay. So, I like so here, when they me, break it up. Let me continue. Here's the second set. Synchronicity two. Nothing too fancy. One. Wife soup. Attachments. Nothing too fancy. Two. Then you got Higgins. All in time. Two. You and you alone. And then the encore is front porch one. Qbert front porch two. Holy crap. Yeah, that is, like, that's, that's, legendary. that's one of those where it's like, it, Q, if we were there, it'd be like, oh my God, we finally like came to like a perfect show. Yeah. Was wife soup full or did they cut oh, yeah. it off? No full. Yeah. They don't do that anymore. That's probably Thank the God. best set I've, I stopped following their sets the last couple of years. Oh, it's the it's, best one I've heard in a long time. Well, 11, four, November 14, 2021. So check that one out. Or if, if you want, I'll, I'll send it to you. We haven't. This is unusual for us. We've gotten through a bunch of banter, you know, a bunch of bunch of BS and round and round. And we haven't even breathed on tonight's today's this morning's episode yet. Yeah. People, <laughs> or, or, a listener would have <laughs> no idea what we're uh, what album we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> obviously it's been a bit five months. And and can we commit right now? I think we're gonna get back on the horse, right? We're gonna we're gonna get back to you know, regular episodes, I I think. Yeah. I, what's interesting ready. is like the last five months proved that people like listen to us because yeah, we, we got lots of, you know, requests to resume. So yeah, it was like, where are you guys? And we're like, oh, I didn't think anybody noticed. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have but, listeners. And we're both kind of now in, in like, you know, a little bit more ingrained in our new places yeah. of work. and. Uh, well, and it was hockey season. And we all know how, season. We all know, we all know how that goes. Oh my kids. lord! Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but this this um this was spawned by maybe in the last show I went to. Went and saw Duran Duran this last summer, you know, with Mrs. Tof, and we had a wonderful time. It was Duran Duran and um, Nile Rogers, which we'll get to, by the way. And I was telling her on the way, on the way to the show, I'm like, you have no idea who's opening for them. I guarantee you, this is probably going to end up being one of the best opening acts you've ever seen. Cause nobody knows that. Well, few people know this guy by name. And certainly if you're not a music aficionado, you don't realize how many songs he's going to get up there and play that you're going to know. And you're going to love cause you're a girl who wants to dance. And this is all, you know, this is like, this is disco stuff. This is pop stuff. She played with chic like this. You're going to know this guy. And then like, honestly, it was one of the best. It was a, it was an arena show. It was at the little Caesars arena in Detroit. And I've never seen an opening act kind of do what he did. Every single person in the crowd up the entire time, just getting their friggin' dance on the whole time. Cause you know, he's playing one song after the other of all these you know, hits that were maybe performed by other people, but written on or written by or played on by Nile. And uh, 
And it was pretty awesome. It was like, it was almost like, oh my God, Duran Duran has their hands full because the crowd was fired up and you could he overhear everyone around us saying, wow, that was like the best opener I've ever seen, you know? So Duran Duran kind of positioned themselves to have to get up their nail. And of course they did. Right. I mean, they're, they're a phenomenal live band. It was awesome to see them here. It is, you know, this was 2023 this last summer and they are out there touring and they look absolutely fantastic and they sound absolutely fantastic it, Craig me if I'm wrong you haven't seen these guys in a while right yeah I in fact I mean we you know as kids we saw them twice on the wedding album tour we did and I'm sure we'll get to that we will I'm, I'm not thoroughly convinced I've seen them since yeah maybe well, I don't know this would be uh, you know hopefully or no, uh, no 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 see I I did. I went and saw him on Astronaut, like the first reunion okay. with the Taylors. Mm-hmm. That was when I was reviewing. And I and I went and reviewed the shows at the Palace of Auburn Hills. It was great. Okay, good, good. Yeah. Well, probably worth doing again. I mean, it was uh, it was a hell of a show. We had a great night. But today, I you know, there was a debut. Then there was a breakthrough, magnificent record in Rio. We're going to visit the, is this a junior? Yeah, it would be their junior, junior year. Yeah. Yeah. This is their junior year record and a pretty interesting one to look at. It's, it's a peculiar one with fans and definitely came at a interesting time where, I mean, these guys were the biggest band in the world, but also running into the usual indulgences and drama and chaos that any band would in their situation. Why don't we get into the nerdy deeds and we'll start talking about it. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? All right. Uh, Seven and the Ragged Tiger was released on November 21st, 1983. So we were at the ripe old age of three, according to my calculations on this one. It was Duran Duran's third studio album, which followed up the rather impressive debut that for another for another day but has held up incredibly well in my opinion and then of course rio um which was a bit more chalked with top 40 hits uh obviously iconic videos and so during during really kind of had their hands full to follow this up in fact one of the reoccurring themes of the record in terms of the process of development and recording is that there was a feeling amongst the band members and the producers, we'll get to that, that um, all of the band's best material had been used up and they were kind of starting from scratch. And you can sense that when you go through the first two records that they had certainly um, probably put a lot of their good stuff on those two albums, particularly Rio, that they knew were going to be commercially successful, et cetera. And so kind of starting from scratch from a composition standpoint on this uh, third album. The recording process could be best described as rather chaotic. There were multiple locations. This was recorded in France, in the Caribbean, and in Australia. So lots of relocating during the process. The initial idea of getting the band out of the UK was for tax purposes. A lot of, you know, uh, musicians and, and big time bands around this uh, era, we're doing sort of an exile for periods of time or certainly during a uh, recording process to avoid paying the heavy taxes that many performers and musicians were 
having levied upon them at this time in the UK, this actually led to a lot of negative publicity for the band. So it was kind of that point where Duran Duran, I mean, this was, these guys were the biggest band in the world at this point. I think that that can't be, you know, kind of underrated in terms of how huge they were almost Beatlemania in a sense, in terms of the attraction and attention and and tabloid focus and all these kind of different elements that the band was seeing. So, you know, the idea was to kind of get the band out of some of those things. And it actually led to, you know, I think some more drama and some more chaos than uh, the band had sort of sought when they're trying to not only record a new record, but also basically write a new record, which they were really doing from the onset in terms of producers. Um, this, this started, there were actually two producers on the, the, the album, the, the final and, you know, listed producer of the record is Alex Sadkin, um, who was an American. I think he was a Florida guy and he was pretty renowned for doing um, a lot of mixing work, but also produced um, Bob Marley's survival both the Thompson twin records, including uh, Into the Gap, which is an outstanding album. And then uh, Foreigner's Agent Provocator, which I think I've talked about before and is always an interesting record to me, but kind of had a production style of kind of throwing a lot into the mix. I would say more produced than not. And that's certainly the case with um, Seven and the Ragged Tiger. The first producer was a guy named Ian Little. And Nubs, you're probably fairly familiar with with him, he did a lot of work with Brian Ferry, uh, with Manzanera, and and wasn't you know a very experienced producer, but certainly had been in a lot of interesting recording settings. And part of his job was not just to get the band's record produced, but also to help them compose the new material. So he had a technique of programming a drum loop. The band would kind of jam over it, and that's how a lot of things were developed. And that's really how most of the songs on this record were developed with Ian Little. But after a while, things, you know, seemed to not be going in the direction the band wanted. That's when and Ian Little kind of stayed on board, but that's when they brought in Sadkin to kind of close the deal. So Alex Sadkin is the listed producer on the um, record. And this was a, a, a departure from the producer they had used on the first two records. Um, which was Colin Thurston, who did the debut, also did Rio. Um, he would later do Talk Talks, The Party's Over, and The Fury by Gary Newman. So, I mean, they had people around them that knew what they were doing. They had people around them that were pretty innovative as they were going more in this sort of electronic and and, and heavily produced direction. But Nubs, you could see early on how this was going to be a challenge for the group, not just you know, kind of holding up the success of the previous two records. But the fact that there was some writer's block, the fact that they had come into this with producers who were trying to kind of help them compose, not to mention there was some cocaine floating around. And, you know, their their first uh, location for the recording was in the French Riviera. And I, my understanding is that the band was enjoying some of those indulgences and working short days and not at full speed. And, you know, you could kind of see early on that this thing was, you know, going to be a little bit, you know, chaotic from the onset, but they still did a good job of surrounding themselves with people that were familiar with the direction the band was wanting to go and certainly knew what they were doing. I think anytime you analyze an album of importance, you have to look at what came before and what came after. And when we get into the drop the needle track by track, we can look a lot at what came before. 
because this band is absolutely a product of what came before it. Duran Duran to me is the, they're like the most original, unoriginal band ever, you know, <laughs> yeah, and I'll yeah. explain that as we go. I mean, they, they aren't original, but they are so modeled after really, really two bands, in my opinion, that came before them. So we'll talk about what, they, what came before them, but you got to look at what comes after and, and what comes after is a totally different Duran Duran. You know, they, they do three years afterwards and Notorious comes out, which is a completely different record in every single way, sonically production wise, certainly in, in the, the style of music. That's when the Nile Rodgers thing becomes like very official. That is also when they kiss two of the Taylors goodbye, at least for, you know, a, a couple decades or so. That's vital to understand because this is the last album of the original run of the classic Duran Duran lineup, Le Bon Rhodes and the Three Taylors. One thing's for sure, it came from instability. It came from this band that was slowly but surely breaking apart from what it started as. And we learned that with Notorious three years later. So in a lot of ways, it's, it's a swan song of Duran Duran's initial heyday, which makes it even more interesting. Yeah, that's right. And and there are there are so many tailors in this band. It's hard to keep them all straight. None of them are brothers, though. That that's a common misnomer. But yeah, to your point, this is the um, last recording for a very long time, twenty plus years, where the band was in its original form. And uh, this tour that would follow would be the the final tour. In fact, the Live Aid show, uh, nineteen eighty five, was the last time that the original five piece was on stage together. By the way, have you heard the? Uh, there was a classic blunder by Simon Lebon during that. Have you have you heard about this when they're performing "A View to a Kill"? Yeah. Yeah. So, so he hit a, he hit a really bum note while they were performing a view to a kill. And, you know, you got to take yourself to live aid. This was something that was broadcast across the entire world. And remember they did the thing in the, in the morning in London. And then they did the thing in the evening in um, was it Philadelphia, I believe. So, I mean, this was like the world was watching and, and <laughs> poor Simon Lebon, you know, got up there and they were performing a view to kill, which was really challenging. Uh, um, oh God, vocal. incredibly hard song to sing. Yeah. And he, and he just, the poor guy like hits this horrid here. I'll play it for you. His voice like cracks. <laughs> was he trying to go falsetto? I, I think so. That was kind of the word he, he said it was the most embarrassing moment of his entire career. I mean, you know, you do that at a show in, uh, Dallas, who cares? But doing that, you know, on a broadcast to the entire world, it's I think they called Freddie Mercury's uh, the note heard round the world when he was doing his thing, his his long note on um, is it we are the champions or whatever during uh, during Live Aid. And they called Simon's the uh, bum note heard around the world. So, you know, I mean. <laughs> Anyway, that was the last performance of the uh, original five piece. This record got destroyed by critics and, and the critics didn't love Duran Duran. I don't know that there were ever, I don't think until all you need is now, um, which was, what was that about 10 years ago? Probably maybe a little bit more a record that they put out after they had gotten sort of reformed and back to their roots. It's an outstanding record. You were the one that actually tipped me off to it. If I recall correctly. That was like the first Duran Duran record ever that critics actually liked. But, you know, even early on, um, th these albums were not 
critically praised and seven and the ragged tiger is is no exception to that it really it really got hammered and frankly you know we'll talk through it but they they put out two singles uh right from the get-go and they both did kind of okay and then the third single which actually got reworked by somebody that we have already mentioned on this episode was the the not only the single that really saved this record but in a lot of ways it, it kind of rescued the band because things were starting to spiral a little bit, both internally within the group and also externally with some of the bad press with the first two singles doing well, but not amazing. And this album actually, after a few months, when this third single got released, really saw its resurgence. And that's when it hit uh, number one in the UK. And it was the first and only Duran Duran record to actually make number one in the UK and it uh also hit number 1 in the US uh as a single. So so look, I mean it's 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 an interesting kind of stage for the band. This band is just a survivor. You look at it and you, you with members coming and members going and members coming back, you you kind of wonder how the whole thing was able to stay together, but it has granted in many different iterations. There were side projects, the power station was uh, a couple, I think two of the Taylors and uh, Robert Palmer, you know, who got together and did, uh, uh, let's see, Some Like It Hot, I think was their their big, big hit. And then, yeah, uh, and they did that uh, T-Rex cover. Yeah, like, cover of Bang a Gone. It's a hilarious yeah. cover. And then, of course, Simon and Nick, Nick Rhodes, the keyboardist, um, formed Arcadia. Now, they just did one record, and it basically sounds like Duran Duran quite a bit, with maybe a little bit more sort of techno electronica, you know, kind of direction. Do you like the Arcadia record or the power station uh, piece? I like them both. I like the power station album better just because I just like love Robert Palmer so much. Maybe the coolest guy in the history of pop music, certainly in the eighties, but uh, yeah. I think the Arcadia album is okay. I actually discovered that one about 10 years ago mm -hmm. and Election Day is great. And then after that, it's kind of like, okay. Right. Yeah, Election Day is cool. But like John Taylor is so important yes. to this band. Yeah. He, he yeah. in a lot of ways, he is this band. We'll talk about it. Oh, we will. Anything we will. without it, him is like a little, yeah, it, it's missing something, of course. Well, let's do that because I'm ready to talk about him as well and uh, his rather talented approach to his instruments. So, why don't we get to that and let's uh, I, we go we go a long way back with this band and uh, let's uh, hit some of those Duran Duran uh, memories here with the Wonder Stories. Nubs, I'm sure we're going to go in a in a similar direction here uh, with a. Uh, with an early concert memory, but uh, I'll turn it over to you. What's your uh, wonder story with this, this fine group of lads, Duran Duran? Well, the other thing about the concert memory is that it comes like virtually 10 years after we got into this band, because this is another Betty band. This is another, our cool mom who introduced us to so much music and took us to so many shows. I mean, she was a huge Duran Duran fan. So two things simultaneously happen when you're born in 1980. One is if you have a cool mom who likes young British boys singing pop songs that she can jump on her trampoline to. Number two is that you're born in the absolute zenith of MTV. 
the creation of it, the building of it. And by the time we were watching MTV, they had gotten that thing so right with the VJs, the personalities, the way that the musicians were integrated directly into the programming with interviews and promos and all sorts of stuff like that. Duran Duran, you know, for, for decades now, they've said, you know, they're the band that MTV built. You could probably make the argument. I think musically they have too much credibility to be so narrowed into that. But MTV was vital to the Duran Duran rise, maybe to its fall as well. And it was so vital to you and I growing up. So started with Betty, MTV elevated it. And we were able to first see Duran Duran at the Palace of Auburn Hills on the wedding album tour. And Ordinary World, top five favorite song of all time for me, Come Undone, Too Much Information. These were, these were hit songs. These are radio hits now. So Duran Duran had, had re-entered the, you know, the pop culture. And then I think on the same tour, maybe even the same calendar year, maybe uh, within 365 days, but a different calendar year, we went and saw them at, the, at Pine Up. Yes. And uh, so we, and what was notable about that one? Well, in both cases, we went without our parents. We went with girls. Girls. Yeah. It was our first concert with girls. Our aunt and uncle took us. Right. Denise, who we just lost in the past year. So it's nice yes. we're bringing her up on the podcast. Yes. Actually came down for a little who bit. Who also now. loved great music, went to great concerts with us. And what was a big, and, and, and more was a big part of, our appreciation for, you know, Aria Speedwagon sticks, you know, oh, yeah. like that whole kind of, that was sort of her jam. Barry Manilow and, too. Uh, big Barry Manilow. Yeah. Huge Barry fan. Yeah. And uh, definitely a big, big impact on us uh, musically. So yeah, we miss Mort. Yeah. So, th- and we took girls and that was a big deal. In fact, yes. I remember getting a little snuggly with my little date in the uh, car. Right. We had a suburban where there were like two couch things. Yes. And it was our aunt and uncle, so we didn't, you know, they were cool and we didn't care. So we were, we were I remember getting a little snuggly in the back. Well, the, we took this pair uh, called, uh, called uh, Katie and Becca. Yes. And we both had mad crushes on both. Like, yes. it was sort of interchangeable. Like, we all, like, all four of us just had crushes on each other. You know, it was like a, it was, it was <laughs> like, I remember you and I could never pick which one we liked better, you know. But um, that's that was the big thing for me was that this was the first show I recall where almost like a date, like a double date ish. Right. At uh, we must have been 13, I guess. Right. 14, maybe. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, and then obviously well into nowadays, you might say the stuff that, that's come out since I think their last two albums are really, really good. Mm-hmm. I know Dance Macabre is one of them, I think it's called. And the one before that with the colorful mm-hmm. cover, I think in particular was outstanding. I mean, they, they just, you said it earlier, they kind of keep getting better and they keep staying relevant and they're a very important band. I think they're a very, very important band to us personally, but more importantly to, to music. So what, what do you have to add? We, we, I think that was a combined wonder start, but do you have anything to add? <laughs> it is pretty amazing. I mean, for a pop group, and for a for a because they were that kind of rose to the status that they did to be able to now sustain that over forty years that's that's unusual that's amazing and and I think it's a testament to um, not just great songs and not just kind of hitting the right notes at the right times but there's some pretty damn talented musicians here seeing them this past summer was great you know they sounded excellent they looked great. 
and the way they play is just outstanding. I mean, I just watched John Taylor the entire show. I mean, the guy, he's just so underappreciated as a bass player. I'm sure you're going to talk about it, but you know, the bands, Japan, Roxy music, some of these groups where bass playing kind of took on a much different form than it did previously. And, you know, you were coming off disco era music where bass playing became pretty intricate and really important to a groove and even more of a backbone than it ever was previously with kind of more of the classic rock type sound or even the prog rock type sound. Just watching John like do his job up there was, you know, worth the price of admission, frankly. One of the other things you mentioned, the videos and, you know, the obviously, you know, MTV and some of the early videos, very important to this group. I think they were the first group to really sort of make films as opposed to just music videos. So in a way that was very artistic, you know, at the time where, you know, these were short films as opposed to just uh, music videos. It seemed like everybody had the cassette tapes for Decade, which was their sort of greatest hits. Now that came a little bit after this, but it was only still a handful of albums in. Uh, and then Arena, which came around this time, which was the live record. I yeah, love it. I, I just wish the crowd noise wasn't so loud on it. The crowd noise yeah. is really loud and, you know, it kind of comes with, it sort of reminds me of Ozzy's uh, Live and Loud, where it's yeah. like, there's no way the crowd was that loud. The whole time <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. That's insane. Um, I, I also remember one thing we had a, I don't know if you recall this, but we had a really hot babysitter when we were probably like uh, six or seven. And I remember she brought over a VHS of the Duran Duran video collection at that time. And I remember like, thinking it was really cool that we were like hanging out with her because most babysitters would just like, we would go downstairs and they would just read books or something. But we were watching the Duran Duran video collection with this like hot high school age, whatever babysitter, which I remember. So what do you say? Shall we, shall we dive into this one, buddy? Yeah, let's do it. It's time. Let's drop that needle and talk about these tracks on this junior year effort from the great Duran Duran. When the drum beats go like Okay, so we talked, uh, at, you know, toward the beginning about Nile Rodgers and the concert I just went to where he opened for them. And the relationship between Nile and this band you know, obviously goes back a long way and um, probably made his biggest contribution on track one for this record, which the album version of is kind of okay and clearly wasn't great enough to be the lead single um, because there were two singles released before this song. And after the first two didn't do that great, they kind of took a look at this track and said, how do we get this radio ready? How do we get this, you know, sharpened up a little bit? And Niall Rogers was the answer. He came in and basically remixed this song for radio and for seven inch single release. They also did a 12 inch version and that version became probably the band's biggest hit and really resurrected this record in a lot of ways. And that song leads seven in the ragged tiger. Here is the reflex.
So that's the album version. And, you know, when you listen to them side by side, there is a there is a decent enough difference between the two. Um, you can tell that the second one was reworked. It was a little poppier. It was a little snappier. The, the, the kind of synthesizer and keyboard elements as well as the layering is a little bit different. So I, I actually don't love the album version and clearly neither did the band because um, they didn't want to release it as is, but certainly the version that got released, which became their biggest hit and really was the one that took this album from being expectedly successful to being extraordinarily successful. But what do you think of the way this opens both on the album? And then, you know, what are your thoughts on kind of how the way they, the way Nile Rogers reworked the single to make it a smash, which is really what it became. Earlier, I mentioned that they're the most original, unoriginal band ever. And the two, you already teased it out, but the two bands that they clearly are influenced by are indeed Roxy Music in Japan. But this album is a, is a little different in the sense that they're becoming a funk band on this album. That's what they are. You know, like yeah. the first album is really new wavy. The second album is super poppy. Although, you know, it's got some experimental stuff on there, like the chauffeur and save a prayer and stuff, but they're like a funk band on this album and they're funking out in major ways, especially with Nile Rogers contributing. A lot of that's the baseline. So almost every Duran Duran song from this era can be chalked up as either like a Roxy song, a Japan song <laughs> or a Duran Duran song. Right. Reflex is a Duran Duran song because it's got the funk. It's got the big backbeat. Whether it's a seven inch version of the album version, it's still got that big kind of driving four on the floor backbeat. It's very danceable. Um, but I, I would love to know who came up with the why, because that's the hook that probably got a lot of listeners interested. I know as a kid, that's what kind of stood out to me. I, Simon probably came up with that. I mean, he, he was definitely the vocal melody guy, and it, I wouldn't be surprised if that was his doing. But who knows? All these guys are such good. I mean, Nick is an incredible musician in terms of how to put sounds on top of things. I mean, how he could have come up with that, who knows, but certainly the reflex um, was a song that in a lot of ways uh, it's hard to say rescued this record because this record was going to do great no matter what commercially, but certainly took it to a new level and leads uh, quite nicely into uh, track number two, which was the second kind of working backwards here. Uh, the reflex was the third really single release. This was the second single release and track two on this record, New Moon on Monday. I think you know this. Um, if you don't know, now you know that I f***ing love this song. It's by far uh, my favorite Duran Duran song. Didn't really connect with it until much later when I was actually listening to their... You remember that Blue and White Greatest? It was Duran Duran Greatest compilation that they put out, which is a great, I mean, you know, greatest hits are greatest hits, but it is a great way to kind of discover the catalog of this band and certainly plow through the singles. And this is going back probably 20 years ago or something. That was like the first time I really discovered this song because it was released as a single. It did okay. 
but it certainly wasn't, you know, one that you kind of heard on the radio a lot or saw on MTV a lot. I think it's their best song and it's not really that close for me. The vocal harmonies are so clever. If you you said earlier that it's either a Japan, a Roxy or a Duran Duran, this one has a lot of Roxy shades to me in terms of the groove and in terms of kind of the the bounce and and certainly the the vocal approach with kind of the those elongated kind of harmony pieces. A fantastic. There's some great vocal moments from Simon on this record. And I think this is one of them. So I think it's top number one, not that close during Duran song dying to know what you think. <laughs> I, for me, it's fine. Like it's yeah. definitely a Roxy song. You put Brian right. Ferry atop this one and you just get this crooning new moon, you know, like it, it changes the vocal, but you could, mm-hmm. the bed would be totally fine. Um, I think it's fine. I, I actually wouldn't consider it in my top 10 during Duran. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. I, I think the chorus gets a little whiny for me. I don't like when LeBond gets super, like when he gets in that high register that I know he can't actually sing, which he does in the chorus. I do like when the ladder comes back down and it, uh, we do that. Nah, that's one of those harmony parts that I think is yeah. really clever and very great cool. progression. Yeah. The baseline is awesome. I mean, John Taylor, just like the when is it not with this? Correct. I mean, (laughs) correct. And it's not out of all the singles. It's not the funk song, but still pretty funky. So it's a nice song in your opinion. It's a good track too. Yeah. Okay. They, the, um, the video for this is pretty funny. If you, if you watch it back. So they, and again, in the spirit of indulgence, which I think there was plenty with this group at this point, the first video of this was a 17 minute, like full on short film. And they submitted it and, and MTV was like, mm, I don't, might be a little long. This isn't quite thriller. Like that might be a little long for our taste. Why don't you size it down? They then submitted like a seven minute and had a couple, like an intro and, and, and then MTV was like, mm, why don't you just give us the actual song? You know? So, so the, the final version ended up being this very condensed of what it originally was supposed to be and probably costed a million dollars to shoot and you know, whatever. But it's kind of funny. They, the video was shot right before, I think it was like two days before Christmas. And the band did not want to be there. They were tired. They wanted to, you know, have a few days off and they had to go shoot this freaking video. And so um, apparently they were sitting at this, it was, I think it was in France. They were sitting at this video shoot all day. And the, apparently all of them got completely shit faced, like hammered. And at the end, there's a scene where they're all kind of dancing and they say like it's a cringe moment for the band, but they actually say that it's a little funny because they were all super drunk during that and in fact nick rhodes who never dances or grooves or even moves like on stage i've never seen him like even he hardly even bobs his head he's dancing in the video and they all thought that was very funny because they said even nick was so hammered that he was out there you know dancing. <laughs> that's a great that's a great story i love that yeah which is kind of funny so all right well let's move on to track three we get into our first kind of album cut here i would say a true album cut and that is i'm looking for cracks in the pavement now I'm saying this in private If I had a car I'd drive it insane Something on my mind Breaking open doors I sealed up before Something on my mind Makes me run when I thought I'd run too far Something on my So this one probably Roxy as well, yeah. Would you agree with that? I mean, 
like an outtake from Manifesto or Flesh and Blood. <laughs> okay, they, good, they good. must have been listening a lot to those two records because you know Roxy went through a lot of different phases. Yeah, and well, this like Avalon is too close to the development of Duran Duran. And you and you know you're Roxy. You're very fond of Roxy. I I don't want to screw this up, so I'm glad I, I'm two for two on on kind of you know the comparison because. I'm I'm a little afraid you're going to be like no no man like not a, not even close you know because you you know your Roxy much better than I do so okay we're so far so good yeah definitely it, and you know I'm actually surprised this wasn't uh, a single or at least a, yeah. a hit single mm-hmm. chorus is actually pretty catchy you know and well, they go from that they they always did so so good at going from the, those majors to those minors yep it was a very clever kind of progression and they often used it but. I agree, man. I think this is a really good album track. It's a very good album track. Yeah. It, it kind of shows how on fire they were in a lot of ways, but yeah, this is, this is super mid-tempo Roxy cut from the pre-Avalon post-country life phase of Roxy music, which clearly Duran Duran must've been listening to quite a bit. Well, let's keep that album cut thing going with track four. I take the dice. kind of okay i mean it's a little it's a little bland it's a little predictable um you know you still get some of that bounce and all that they 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 did not play this song live for ever and then in 2007 on their tour they pulled it out which fans thought was cool you know because i even if it's and they did that a lot, even if there it wasn't necessarily a fan favorite, you know, all of a sudden you're at a live show and they pull out something unexpected as a album cut and they enjoy doing that. And I think that's really cool. You know, it would be, it'd be really easy to just go the, get up there and fly through the greatest hits, you know, like Tom Petty style. But the, the fact that, you know, a song like I take the dice, they pulled it out at that time is cool. But other than that, I think it's pretty bland. This, this to me is a little bit sort of more overproduced predictable, you know, kind of eighties synth pop more so than it is clever in my view. What do you think? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, go in any directions that are all that interesting. I, I actually do think it's one of Laban's better moments vocally. You know, he sounds a bit soul, soulful. He kind of dialed into his actual natural range on this song. He's not like trying too hard to hit notes that he can't hit. He seems to be in that lower to mid register which is kind of where he lives in the most comfortable space so i kind of like his vocal baseline is tight with the drums a little little directionless definitely kind of a classic album cut for sure and rounding out side one track five of crime and passion Well, there's a lot going on there. Hey, I I think, uh, dare I say it, maybe a little over layered. I mean, you've got like horns and like lead guitar and like 
you know, synths going crazy and Simon going crazy. There, there's like a lot going on here. There are moments where I listen to it and I say that's kind of like organized chaos and it's kind of neat. And then there are moments where I just think the song's a complete mess, probably more so the latter than anything else. Yeah, they're maybe trying to do a little too much here. Look, they Duran Duran was not absent of indulgence. It is the 80s. They do have a lot of different voices in their head in terms of producers and production. So any idea is a good idea, right? I like sometimes the album tricks that are a little frantic, you know, a little angular. The key is the rhythm section is still really tight. You know, this song is all rhythm section because there's so much crap going on on top and, and a lot of kind of all over the place-ness. But rhythm section, just discipline, right? I mean, you get like very disciplined musicians running the battery of this band. That always makes the song interesting. Um, it's pretty cool. I, I like them when they get a little frantic sometimes, for sure. We gave you the third single released in The Reflex. We gave you the second single released in New Moon on Monday, the song that Nubs thinks is kind of okay. And now we're going to give you the first single release. This was actually released about a month before the record. And that is Union of the Snake. I, I just gotta say, I just gotta say right off the bat, dude. Yeah, sure. Go ahead, buddy. This song is so fucking funky. I mean, <laughs> it is. Yeah. And and I'll tell you, T, first of all, I've always, I've, I've always loved the song title. In fact, when I was an mm-hmm. earlier Duran Duran fan, I was always disappointed that it didn't like the song more because the title is so cool. Right. Yeah. They do Great have song, cool title. song titles. Don't they, they have really cool song titles, but here, yeah. here's what happened. A few years ago, this is literally within like the last five years. I stopped thinking of it as a pop song because as a pop song, it's actually a little, eh. Mm -hmm. And I started knowing that it was a funk song Uh, and as a funk song. Now I love it. I love it. I had to, I get it. I I had to change that in my brain. It it has much, the union of the stake has much more to do with parliament and the brothers Johnson, then it has to do with Roxy music or Japan. So when we talk about like, there's three sides of the Duran Duran, the Roxy, the Japan and the Duran, this is Duran Duran. This is original because it's so incredibly funky. It's a funk song. It's a funk song and it's a damn good one. That's a great point because they're on the one. I mean, think about it. Doom, 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 doom. Uh, boom, but I mean, it's on the one that's, that's straight up funk. That's Bootsy Collins. And as we learned right? from Bootsy Collins, one, one, one of the great YouTube clips of all time. Okay. Look you, know, you know, one. you know, one, you know, you know, one, one, two, three. and you hit on the one, one, you know, one, you know, and then you would try to fit your different notes, what you felt oh, in between that like. <laughs> You know, and that's the funk. You know? <laughs> and that's the funk. <laughs> you know? and you can- he's sitting there playing, you know, along with this like crappy little drum track. And he's just going, and that's the funk. Like while he's playing. I mean, yeah. Okay. He is the greatest. It's such a great clip. But yeah, there. that's, that's, I, I, and you know what? I never even thought about it that way. But yes, they are on the one. 
that is a funk track and I'm going to listen to that one differently from now on. Thanks to you, buddy. Huh? Who says, who says we don't, you know, break any barriers on this show. Learned right? from each other. There you go. Exactly. The other thing I would note here is you've got uh, that patented Duran Duran sax solo in the middle of Union of the Snake, which, which comes in pretty handy, you know, in many moments and obviously did in at moments during their first couple records and, you know, they always knew when to kind of, they didn't overdo it. You know, they didn't turn it into a Tim Capallo show or anything, but uh, they, uh, they kind of knew when to bring out the sax solo. And I think it's well-placed on Union of the Snake. Second track on side B, otherwise known as track seven is Shadows on Your Side. Now, a, a few things here. I, this might not be, you know, the most renowned or beloved during Duran song. There's some musicianship on this song that is extraordinary. The synth and the keys work by Nick is outstanding. It's not over. Sometimes they would overdo it. It's not overdone, but it's very active and very clever. The bass lines here from John are insane. Just absolutely insane. We knew we were going to cover, you know, John's playing a lot, but the the work he's doing on this is, I mean, he really is one of the greats on that instrument. I think the song is really good. The lyrics, and you know, we're not big lyric guys, but you do have this kind of catchy, poppy kind of upbeat thing going, but the lyrics are actually really intriguing because it was the first time you heard the band and Simon in particular as the lyricist. Speaking to kind of the other side of fame, you know, and you can tell that they were starting to feel that they were starting to feel some of the frustrations and sort of the dark side of fame. And and that's what Shadows on Your Side really speaks to. It's actually a pretty interesting lyric if you stop and read it. And that dichotomy at times of poppy songs, and we talked about with Phil Collins and some others, and then lyrics that are a little bit edgy and sort of dark is always interesting. So I, I think this is a, a really great track on this record. What do you think, buddy? Yeah, I like it a lot. I think the synth atmospheres are very Nick Rhodes. I mean, he's really laying down textures. Again, you know, I, I keep thinking the comparisons, but very like Richard Barbieri from Japan, you know, not playing flashy notes, but just laying down textures. That's what Nick Rhodes is so good at. I'm not even sure Nick Rhodes can like play a scale. You know what I mean? But he <laughs> really understands like sound design, how to serve a song with layering that actually should be there instead of just like adding it on when it doesn't need to be there. That's kind of his secret weapon. I'll have to pay attention to the lyrics more. It, it's that nice Duran Duran edgy rhythmic thing with a nice sing-along, you know, verse and chorus atop of it. It's well done. Very well done. Well, Duran Duran staples, as you mentioned, one other very unheralded Duran Duran staple, particularly early on these early albums is the instrumental and probably not a lot of people unless you really dig into their full albums, realize that these guys had some pretty awesome instrumental work. This song is for, for those that are really dug into this band, this song does hold a, a pretty near and dear place. They used to play it. Uh, so the lights would go out and before the band would take the stage, they would play this. And I guess everyone would, would just go bonkers um, knowing that they were about to hit the stage, which is pretty neat. So here is track eight, the instrumental tiger, tiger. 
can imagine like what a neat kind of because it's not like a it's not like a jock jam song or something to get you all fired up but what a neat way you know 1984 put yourself in an arena lights go out and that kind of like gets you amped up you know which is really cool i think it comes at a really neat point uh, within the record um the kind of second to last track because this is a nine track pretty tight effort my only complaint is it's a little too short i don't know why they didn't extend this a little bit because it's pretty good one of the keys to a good instrumental within the context of an album is that it leaves you wanting more Right. You would never want an instrumental to be like, oh, God, get this thing over with. So I kind of like that's a little tighter. It, it is like straight Japan. If you would have told me that this is an outtake off of Quiet Life or even an album of Quiet Life, I'd be like, yeah, that, that's right. I mean, John Taylor is channeling his inner Mick Karn with the fretless stuff and he sounds great. Yes. Keyboards, nice layers, nice textures, nice atmosphere. It's got this relentless mid tempo beat to it. Very cool. I agree with you. The fact that they introed shows with this, super thoughtful, super thoughtful, mm-hmm. very different, very Duran Duran. I love Tiger Tiger. I think it's an important track on the album, but you know, I'm a sucker for a good instrumental, as you well know. Well, with that said, let's, let's have the quick debate. Better instrumental from Duran Duran, Tiger Tiger off this record or Tel Aviv off the debut record. Wow. I know. It's I tough. Tel Aviv. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'd give Tel Aviv the edge. It's tough, but I think I might go Tiger Tiger just because of the Okay. Uh, I really like what John Taylor's doing with the fretless. I'm such a sucker for fretless. Although Tel Aviv might have fretless in it too. <laughs> just both represent how experimental this band could be. Sure. That's what was so cool about Duran Duran. They were Tierpoy, the biggest band in the world, and MTV Darling. But they were making these experimental instrumentals part of these multi-platinum albums. Gotta love that. That's why they're still around, T. That sense of exploration, that sense of like experimentation, that's why they're still around, you know? Couldn't agree more. And in addition to the instrumentals, one thing this band always kind of had to figure out is the proper way to close an album. And I think that's no exception when you look at track nine and the final track of Seven and the Ragged Tiger, and that is The Seventh Stranger. Whether it's the aforementioned Tel Aviv, which closes out the debut record, whether it's the chauffeur, which you mentioned earlier, that closes out Rio or the seven stranger. I think these guys kind of figured out how to how to bookend an album and certainly how to wrap one up. Um, There's a great live version of this on Arena. It's chalked with hits, that live record, but there's a great version of this there. And and sort of that something percussion kind of fallout at the end is really neat in terms of the way the album actually closes. I think you add it to the list of kind of their first three albums, each having great closers with Tel Aviv, The Chauffeur, and this, The Seventh Stranger. What do you think? I really like the way it's set up as the closer. Second half of this album is really interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it it's, really, yeah, it's good. <laughs> it's, yeah, it starts with the funk single and then it just like swims along in this very interesting way that 
is totally different from side one. And I have to say, what stands apart is totally different from Rio and the first album too. I mean, I almost feel like the second half of Seven of the Ragged Tiger is where the band kind of says, you know, we've earned the right to just do what we want here. And we're going to do that. Read this note I'm pointing to. What does that say? Side two of this record is pretty strong, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, yeah, I think we're aligned there. I mean, this is, um, and it's tight. It's only, you know, the four songs, but it's pretty good. You know, you go Union of the Snake into the closer and it's not drawn out. Um, it's 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 pretty to the point and diverse. There's not, you know, they're not kind of making one move and going with it. There's, you know, you got an instrumental, you got things that are a little bit more upbeat. You got the funk to your point on Union of the Snake. And then obviously you have a, a pretty atmospheric, you know, closer here with um, the seventh stranger. So that's a wrap um, for better, or for worse, nine tracks and uh, nubs. What do you think of this one as far as how does it hold up and, and did it matter in terms of kind of 1983 and this band trying to take itself in, albeit a more dancey kind of electronic direction, but also in some ways, a little bit more of a experimental atmospheric direction. So what do you think? It's my favorite of the three original albums. I think it mm. sounds the best. I think it explores the most territory. It's got the couple big hits. It's got some experimental stuff. It has that feeling of finality to it, in my opinion, but still with that commerciality that that was, I mean, it's a huge album, multi-platinum, right? It has to. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Number one all over the world. I mean, yeah, this was a big record. Yeah, it was huge. So, you know, I'm always going to be very in love with albums that were super experimental, but also incredibly successful. And this is that for sure. So I, I love Seven the Ragged Tiger. I love the name of it. I love the album sleeve. I, I think it's, I just... It's my favorite of the early You like three. the cover? You like I that? do. I think it's cool. And it's not overplayed or overanalyzed like the first two albums are. I mean, Rio is beyond overanalyzed. And the first album, you know, had this like freshness and hit thing to it. This is a band kind of settling in and saying, we're going to be here for a while. And I love that. What do you think? Does it, does it hold up in your opinion? It does. And I think obviously the direction that, you know, music is currently going, which isn't always ideal in terms of kind of synth and layering and keeping things pretty tight and short and not screwing around too much. I think there's a lot of redeeming elements here. I do think that side two is really interesting. I wouldn't usually say this, but I do think the album's a little short. You know, I think it's still two tracks away from being complete and full. I mean, it's 37 minutes long, you know, so uh, dare I say it, um, and I, and I hate over track indulgence, but this is a little too short, you know, so um, not sure if you agree, but that's kind of one of my thoughts. I, I think that it's pretty solid top to bottom. And I do think that the band taking itself in more of a synth pop direction was cool and probably helped in terms of longevity. I mean, this was the the album that signaled that these guys were going to go beyond just, just making pop hits and that they were going to expand themselves into a pretty diverse outfit over the years. Cause they could have easily just run a lot of the same plays as they did production wise and composition wise on the first two as produced as it is. And as electronica as it is, I do think there's a experimental element to this that makes it pretty interesting. So on that note, let's do the final cut. Let's see if I remember this. It's been a while. Do you have this on the turntable? Do you have this 
in the collection, collecting dust, or are you putting this in the for sale bin? Boy, that was easy. That came back. That was like riding a bike, buddy. That was like riding a bike. I've got this one in the collection. I think that it has the commerciality to, you know, bring someone into the 1980s in a way that makes it um, accessible and tangible. But it also satisfies that 80s, you know, synthy kind of more explorative idea of the decade, which is the most underrated part of the decade for sure. So I've got it in the collection, T. I think it's solidly in the collection. Where do you have seven in the ragged Zagger? Nubs, I've got it collecting dust and, uh, you know, that's nothing against it. I just, uh, I think for Duran Duran, I think if you're going to put one in the collection, the debut or Rio might be a little bit more vital. Um, Honestly, I think it's a band where if you just want to stick to the greatest, the blue and white greatest hits deal, and then, um, you know, kind of pile on the the albums, at least that you like from there. And there's plenty, a couple of them weren't great, but most of them have been very good. Definitely don't want to put it in the for sale bin. There's too much good stuff going on. I really love side two. I think it's super interesting. I think you nailed it there. And and it's a great band and glad I got to see them and, and boy, the musicianship and some of the creativity from these guys uh certainly is the reason they've been around for four decades and you know anytime that's the case um particularly for a group that started out with more kind of pop roots and some mainstream roots you know oftentimes those things have the worst chance of survival these guys proved otherwise and i think it's you know certainly because of their ability and interest in always um experimenting always wanting to create atmosphere and always you know, having the ability to kind of achieve relevance without getting away from who they truly are. And, and I think that sort of authenticity that you've always gotten from them, which is driven by their talent is a big reason why they've stuck around. So uh, collecting dust for me, but still an album that I really appreciate and, and really enjoyed kind of revisiting top to bottom. All right. Well, let's, uh, we haven't heard from old Dolores in a while. Um, I mean, she's dead, right? So that might be part of the reason. But more importantly, it's because, you know, we've been sitting on our ass the last five months without doing an episode. What do you got for us? Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Man, she's a lot of practice. Took her a while to get that out. What do you got, buddy? What's in your head? Well, you know what? I, I listened to a lot of Pearl Jam this week because I was able to secure oh, tickets great. to, yeah, we got to go back Super. to our Pearl Jam thing, yeah. to the Wrigley Field show on May, no, Memorial Weekend. Oh, no, nice. Labor Day weekend. No, oh. way, way down the road in the fall. I'm trying to think about it. Um, That's what happens when you're at one day at a time mode when you get to be <laughs> right. our, at our stage of life. It's exactly. Like, if it isn't happening in the next six hours, I, I really don't have a lot of detail for you. Right. So I'm just going to throw out, <laughs> I've been listening to Pearl Jam shows, so I'm going to say Break or Fall, Do the Evolution, and Dissident were three songs that stuck out, stood out. But I'm pumped that I got tickets to their Wrigley Field show, and I've been listening to a lot of Pearl Jam. Is that just an F you to me that that you're going to go with three Pearl Jam songs on your in your head? Is that just, yeah. I mean, why, why don't you just, you know, just kick this ass for a man? Yes, you know, that's like, right. That's right. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. All right. What is in your head, T? I've got, speaking of instrumentals, uh, Somebody Up There Likes You by Simple Minds. Fabulous instrumental song. Similar to kind of what we've talked about with Duran Duran's execution of these things. The second is Filter, band I've always loved, uh, just put out, well, a few months ago, I guess, but put out their most recent record, which took a while to get out. Not surprising because 
everything with Richard Patrick seems to be a little bit filled with drama, but the algorithm is a, a recent record from those guys. And there's a record, there's a song on that called say it again, uh, which is excellent. I think those guys do a good job, you know, and every album is interesting and developed quite a catalog now, you know, almost, almost shuffle worthy on that band. So filters, new record, the algorithm has a song called say it again, check it out. And then the third one, man is, is actually, I, I just said this to you last night, but Def Leppard, they, they had that live, it was a video or a, I don't think it was an album, but in the round in your face, you know, from like 1988 on the hysteria tour, there's a performance of animal on that. That is just so good. Like so freaking good. You might have to go on YouTube to check it out, which also gives you the visual of the performance, which is outstanding. But uh, Nubs, hey, we're back on we're back in the saddle here. You think you think uh, let's make a prediction. How long until our next episode? I'd say let's aim for two a month. I think if that's realistic, let's try and do that. Yeah. You know what? Two a month would be great. But thanks for getting back on the horn and. And I won't give you as hard of the time this time because we've we've both been pretty busy. And congrats on your new job and congrats on just everything you're doing right now. Nubs, just really crushing it. Oh, and, thanks. Uh, oh, th- thanks. Thanks a lot to you. Yeah. And uh, you know, hey, you're up next. So let's uh let's take some initiative here, get this thing done, you know, in the next two weeks. That so. sounds good. Let's do it. All right, buddy. Hey, uh, appreciate you all revisiting this old uh, 1983 classic with us. And hey, instead of going on Netflix and and watching we are the world why don't you just you know go back and listen to our episode because i think it's better and we were there first okay we were there first don't forget it we will see you all very soon sooner than five months um and uh and nubs will bring us some joy as we proceed on to the next episode which will be episode 87 when you hear from us next here on two twins and an album y'all take care now two That's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.